So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now turn to chapter 10 and verse 23. It says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Years ago, when we were out in Washington, we were involved in a church that just just shortly after we got there, everything kind of came to light that was hidden in secret at the time, and it was not pretty. There were some serious sin issues within the leadership of the church, dealing with a pastor, a pastor's wife, a deacon, a, one of our Christian school teachers, and it was a horrible experience. But you know what? It's kind of interesting that the church actually grew and flourished during that time of dealing with a very, very tough situation. And they came through it actually having grown numerically. There were a couple families, I remember, within the church that were kind of attending the church regularly but had not joined the church. When the church went through that process... They were impressed with the other people of the church and the spirit of the church and the way things were handled and everything. And so they actually joined the church during that time. Then what happened after that was, obviously they needed a new pastor. Well, what's he going to be like? What kind of things are important to us that we want to be important to him? And there were some disagreements on some of those things. And those were not nearly such serious issues. But you know what? It destroyed the church. They shouldn't have been things that would divide the church, but they absolutely tore the church apart. 
And I've often thought, looking back on that time, that it's just a shame that they would handle the serious stuff so well and the gray areas so horribly. And when we look back at the letter to Corinth, that's what they're dealing with. They've just gone from dealing with the serious issues. You know, over the last few weeks, we've looked at chapter 5 where he said, look, because of the serious issues in this guy's life, you need to kick him out of the church. In fact, in chapter 5, he, he kind of makes a list of sins that are serious. In verse 11, he said, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. No, not even to eat with such a one. So in other words, in 1 Corinthians, he's just got done dealing with a lot of serious sin issues. And he's instructed the church on how to deal with those issues. Now he's looking to issues that we would call gray areas. In fact, that's what we're dealing with here this morning, is we're learning to deal with the gray areas. Notice in, in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols. Now, it's different. Right? In chapter 5, verse 11, idolatry was one of those sins that was listed as, we can't tolerate this. But, you know, sometimes, in fact, I think probably most times, your gray areas kind of rub shoulders with your serious areas. He said in chapter 5, if you're in idolatry, that's a serious issue. We can't have that. In fact, in part of the passage between the two chunks that we read, he's going to talk about how you cannot observe the Lord's Supper and go to a temple to worship an idol. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. You can't do both. You can't worship God and other gods. God is exclusive. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here's the deal. The way things worked in their temples was people brought an animal to be sacrificed to the idol's temple. And then three different things happened with the meat. Some of the meat got burnt up in the sacrifice. Some of the meat went to the priests. And that's how they were supported. And some of the meat went to the people that brought the sacrifice. Now, if the priest is offering a lot of sacrifice, then obviously he ends up with a lot more meat than he needs. The meat that the priest didn't need would be sold within the meat market. And so if you went to do your grocery shopping and you went to the meat market to buy some meat, a good chance you're buying some meat that was a sacrifice at a pagan temple. Now, here's the deal. If you go to the meat market and buy meat that was sacrificed to an idol... Are you participating in idolatry? No, you're not. But that's what they're having struggle with. And these people are having a legitimate struggle with this because some of these people used to go to that temple and offer those sacrifices and worship that idol. It's hard for them to make a distinction. Notice in verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And the other thing that gave him problem is apparently location. And it talks about you sitting in an idol's temple eating. Best I could figure what he's referring to there is sometimes the temples and stuff would be used for like family events, community events. Can you go to a community event in an idol's temple? Is that okay? And so some of the people that used to worship there were having trouble with that. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to him and saying, look, it's, it's not a problem. You can eat the meat that was offered to an idol as long as you didn't go offer your own sacrifice to that same idol. As long as you didn't go worship. You can go to a community dinner 
at the temple because it's not a worship service for that idol. It's just a building at that point. It doesn't mean anything. But he recognizes this. Some of you are just not going to be able to do that. Your conscience, maybe you don't have enough knowledge yet. You're just having a hard time seeing it that way. So for you to go sit in the idol's temple at a community dinner or for you to take home meat from the marketplace that you know was sacrificed to an idol, you're just gonna, it's going to plague your mind the entire time. For you to do it, you will actually be going against your conscience. And the Bible tells us never to go against our conscience in that way because if we do that, we're not acting in faith and anything not of faith is sin. And so he's telling these people, look, some of you are going to do it. It's fine. Some of you won't be able to do it. Also fine. What we're looking at here is a legitimate gray area. There are areas where it's okay to disagree. One people, because of former experience, might see something of very strongly one way, and somebody else, because of their previous experience, might see it very differently. It's not a sin issue. It's, it's okay. So the first thing, obviously, is we need to recognize that there are gray areas, but that not all areas are gray areas, right? Because he just left some very black and white issues as he comes into this passage in chapter 8. But in dealing with these gray areas, the first area that he deals with is theology. Within this theology, he does a couple things. He says, first of all, the things that we know, and that's what he focuses on. What do we know? What is our understanding? Chapter 8, verse 1, food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And so the first point of theology that he points out is simply that there is only one God. And I love that because he just goes right to, he says, well, what do we know? Right? He deals with it knowledge first. What do we know? We know that there's only one God. All the other gods out there are imagined. They're manufactured by mankind. They're not real. He says there's only one real, true God. All the rest of them are nothing. What does that have to do with meat sold in the marketplace? People are still worshiping false gods, whether the false god exists or not. And he says, yeah, there's lots of them. There are lots of so-called gods that people are worshiping, but they don't exist. What is an animal that's been offered up to that and then sold in the meat market? What is that? It's nothing. Nothing has happened to that animal that makes it inedible. When they go in and they worship another god, they worship the figment of their imagination. Nothing has taken place except for their worshiping. You know, later he talks about them worshiping. There's no other god. Is that meat somehow mystically changed by going through that sacrifice? No. It's still just a piece of meat. That's all it is. And so that's what he deals with first is that there is, there's only one god. Let's get to the, the theology of the matter. Continuing to deal with that, what does that mean? Food will neither condemn or commend you. Notice what he says in verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. It's not about food. Physical food that goes into our body. The Apostle Paul talks about this on different occasions in different contexts, and it always comes out to the same thing. Look, 
food can't defile you. Jesus talked about the same thing. It just passes through. It doesn't, doesn't make you right before God. Now Israel, for a time in the Old Testament, you may question, well, why did they have dietary restrictions? Well, they had dietary restrictions, the Bible tells us looking back, because that was one of the ways that God kept Israel peculiar. He wanted them to be peculiar, to be set aside, set apart from the other nations, to remain distinct from the other nations as the chosen people of God. And so he did a couple things. One of them was their dress, and one of them was what they ate. And so when you get to the New Testament, Christ presents himself to Israel as their Messiah. They reject him. The apostles continue to try to reach the nation of Israel, the Jews, with the gospel. But then they also start to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. And at one point, there's a transition time there in Acts chapter 10, where Peter's on top of a roof and he falls into a trance. And and God, in a dream, in a vision, lowers a sheet with all these animals on it and unclean animals on it. And he says to Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. My lips won't touch anything that's unclean. Never. God tells him three times to get up and kill and eat. And Peter says, never, all three times. And then the vision ends and somebody knocks at the door. And it's these people from a Gentile named Cornelius that came because God told him, go to Peter and he'll give you the gospel. And they were coming and they wanted the gospel. And what was God showing Peter with a vision? What I've called clean, don't call unclean. God was beginning to cleanse the Gentiles, reach the Gentiles with the gospel, and Peter needed to get on board with that. Well, and so for these people looking at this and saying, well, what do we do? He says, well, what's the theology of the thing? What do we know about God? God's the only God. It's just a piece of meat in the market. It's not going to do anything. But notice, he says, it won't condemn you and it won't commend you. That's important. Because you know what I find is a lot of times when it comes to these gray areas, Everybody has their opinion. Like he says at the beginning, you, you, you have knowledge. We all have knowledge. Everybody always wants to persuade everybody else to their opinion. And he's like, why? You're not any better for, your, for doing it the way you see it, so why should they change to your way? And they're not any worse off for not doing it your way. So just leave it alone. Theology is the first thing that he deals with. But then secondly, he, he strikes a balance. And I love the balance. He starts off in chapter 8. We know that all of us possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. Now, is he saying we should get rid of knowledge? Absolutely absolutely not. He's not saying that. And if you've read uh, any of the Apostle Paul's letters through any of the books, you notice that he's big on knowledge. They're full of content. And so it's important for us to have knowledge. He wants to balance knowledge with something else. He wants to balance knowledge with love. It's not all about knowledge. It's about knowledge and love in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, in fact, this is, the, this is the verse that sent me to Bible college. When I was studying underneath a pastor and um, trying to decide where, if I should go to Bible college and where I should go to Bible college and things like that, I just pulled out my Bible and started looking up every place the word knowledge was found in the Bible. And this one right here got me going to uh, Bible college. It says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. And I thought, holy cow, I don't want any church that I end up leading be suffering from a lack of knowledge and being destroyed or a ministry of no impact in their in impact generations to come because of my lack of knowledge. So off to Bible college I went. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34, he tells the church, he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. 
saying, look, you guys are not getting the knowledge of God. You're not getting it out there. You're not sharing it with your friends and neighbors and your coworkers and your schoolmates. Uh, this is your responsibility to get it out there. So obviously, he holds the knowledge of God in a high regard. But the problem is, knowledge, even of good things, uncoupled with love, becomes boastful. It becomes arrogant. It becomes prideful. The way he puts it in this passage, he says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. But love, love builds up. Love is going to take that knowledge and use it in a constructive way in your own life and in the lives of others. I think we have just lived through in the last year and a half a very graphic example of exactly what he's talking about here. I'm telling you, in dealing with this COVID thing that we've been going through for a year and a half or so, better now, there is no shortage of knowledge. And there is no shortage of people that think they have the corner on the knowledge. It doesn't matter which side of what part of the issue you're on. We're constantly being told, I'm following the science. What is science? Science is knowledge. But you know what we've been missing? There's plenty of knowledge floating around. Not a lot of love sometimes. And you see, knowledge will make us feel like I'm right. I need to, I'm better. Shouldn't, but it does. Even knowledge about good things. You know, the, the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked so regularly in his day were proud of their understanding of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament scriptures. Of course, they completely missed the one that was all, all about. But they were so proud of their position and their knowledge of Old Testament scriptures. And it made him completely arrogant and useless in God's plan. We need knowledge, but... And I love the way he does it. He says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, when we think we got the market cornered on, on truth, then maybe it's time to look again because we probably don't have all the ducks in a row. When I went to Bible college, there were certain issues before going to Bible college that I just knew I knew. And I would argue tooth and nail for him. And you know what I found out when I got to Bible college and I started reading widely and I started learning from professors that, that knew a whole lot more than I did is that not only did I not know all the answers, I didn't even have any idea how many questions were out there. Even the Apostle Paul says, you know what, right now we see through a glass as though it was darkened. And so knowledge really needs to be tempered and obviously doesn't need to be tempered with, tempered with love. Knowledge will coerce. Knowledge will push. Love builds. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. First Corinthians chapter 13, what we often refer to as the love chapter, he says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. With our knowledge, we can tend to be puffed up. With love, we will build one another up. Romans 14, dealing with exactly the same issue, He puts it this way to the Romans. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
see what he's saying there? He's saying, look, stop arguing with each other about these things. If it's a gray area, then it really doesn't matter if you do it the same way that person does or not. Just build one another up in love. Maybe that person will come more toward you. Maybe you'll go more toward them. It doesn't matter. Have that balance of knowledge coupled with love. You know, one of the things that just uh, passed us by here just last week is a, probably a great example of that. When I think of like Halloween, Halloween, I've kind of gone through different phases or stages of it. When I was a kid growing up, Halloween, we never, never even thought anything of it. Never knew the history of it, never cared, never just went out trick-or-treating once a year and had fun with that and enjoyed it, and no big deal. Uh, later, I came to Christ, and uh, we start, and we had a, had a family, and we started to think about things along biblical lines and, and what our faith meant and how it impacted different things. And somebody shared with me the history of Halloween, and it is a horrible history. Kind of the same idea as like the Mardi Gras, right? Mardi Gras is before you go into the Lenten season, and during Lent, people give things up for God. Well, Mardi Gras is like, all right, we're going to have to give things up to tomorrow, so today let's overindulge in it. Kind of a horrible idea. Halloween started kind of the same way. All Saints Day coming right up. So the night before All Saints Day, all evil needs to break loose because the next day is a holy day. So we need to be an unholy day. And so it's a, it's a horrible holiday when you think about it that way. But you know what? Nobody's thinking about it that way. And so we went through a kind of a cycle, I think, with our kids. We thought about it. We thought, you know what? With, with what the history is of it and everything, I just don't like it as a holiday. And granted, even today, if I was going to get rid of one holiday, that'd probably be the one. It's not meaningful, like Christmas or Easter or the Fourth of July. or It's just shallow at best, you know. But nevertheless, it's fun as a community. And so I think there is some value to it. We kind of went in a circle a little bit. For a while, we said, you know what, we're not going to let our kids trick-or-treat and celebrate Halloween. And so we went out and bought a bunch of candy, and we played games with our kids so that they weren't missing out on something. I remember talking to another guy and he said, you know what, I don't think we should do even that. He said, I think we should just teach our kids we don't do things because this is the origin of Halloween, so we just don't do them. His wife disagreed with him on that, so his kids still got to go trick-or-treating. And so we just kind of kept doing what we were doing. Down the road a little ways, as we talked about it and thought about it a little bit more, we said, you know what, the origin of Halloween is not good. But you know what, they're not doing that. That's not why the kids are trick-or-treating. If you go out and pull people on the streets that are trick-or-treating, it's just not what's happening out there. So finally we ended up letting our kids trick-or-treat. And I don't know if all my grandkids trick-or-treat or not. I know some do. Maybe some don't. I don't know. But you know what the point is? It just doesn't matter. I remember talking to somebody one time out on the steps, uh, just as a member of the community that I met, and, and he was talking about uh, high school dances and stuff. And referring to the dance, he says, our young people are worshiping Baal. I was like, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a huge fan of the high school dances. I'm thinking there's not a lot good that can happen at them probably. <laughs> but, so I'm not a, a real fan of it. But you know what we did with our kids is we just kind of said, you, you know what, you need to look at what you experienced there. And it's an area of liberty. You go if you want. Don't go if you don't want. We were just as glad or glad or probably when they didn't go. But we just taught them how to use their own liberty and their own Holy Spirit and the Word of God to make those decisions. And, you know, the guy that was out there telling me our kids are worshiping Baal by going to a high school dance, I thought, ah, I just, Baal worshipers were worshiping Baal. I don't think these people are worshiping Baal. Most, they don't even know who Baal is. So there's a lot of areas out there where well-meaning, grounded Christians, strong in their faith, got to look at the things and collect their knowledge and and through love build one another up and you got to make some decisions and if we don't all come to the same exact place on all these things well then that's okay that's okay as we consider these things the apostle paul is teaching us how do we deal with 
gray areas. One, have your theology straight. Know who you believe. See clearly what's going on. Two, have a balance. There's knowledge. Knowledge is crucially important. Love also needs to be a part of that equation, part of that balance. We can't tear people out down, apart with our knowledge. We need to build them up with that knowledge coupled with love. And then also, lastly, well, what are the results? And this will help you decide on these gray areas where it comes right down to this. Basically, it deals with two areas. I went back and forth on whether to call them goals or results because they're the same thing. It's what you want to happen in the end. What is the final outcome? The final outcome is, first off, the glory of God. Chapter 10 and verse 31, which he says the kind of the final conclusion of the matter is what? So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's how you answer those things. When you look at these issues, you look at it and say, how can I best glorify God? If God is best glorified in me participating or not participating, then that's where you land. Well, also in verse 6 of chapter 8, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's part of our theology. We are all from God and for God. It's in Him that we have our existence. We are all have our existence through Christ. It's for Him. And so our decision should be made based on how do we bring Him the most glory. And then lastly, you know, it's the same thing that we end up praying for everybody that we pray for. We always pray for what? For the glory to go to God and the good to go to the people that we're talking about. And that's what we see. We see the good of others. He tells them, he says, you know what, why don't you do this? Rather than looking down on that person, rather than trying to change that person, why don't you see that you're not a stumbling block? Maybe, if it, maybe it was part of the Hippocratic Oath, that, for that part. Do, first off, do no harm, right? He says, if you, if you in your freedom put a stumbling block in their way that trips somebody up, then maybe you need to cut back on your freedom. You see... Immaturity in a Christian life will tend toward one of two directions. It'll either become overly legalistic, trying to make everybody else be just like us, or it'll become overly libertarian, throwing off all shackles and doing whatever you feel like, regardless of how it affects anybody else. True Christian maturity is found somewhere in the middle, where you're not overly legalistic, trying to make everybody else look just like you, but you're not overly libertarian either. Participating and doing whatever feels good to you at the moment to do with, and no matter how it impacts anybody else. He actually spends quite a bit of time saying we need to consider others. Um, in verse 24, notice of chapter 10. In verse 24 it says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then in verses 32 and 33, as he finishes out the matter, he says, Give no offense to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I seek my, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So the Apostle Paul says, how do we, how do we respond in these great areas? Well, our theology teaches us that there's, there's only one God. And there's a lot of uh, other things going on out there that really don't, don't impact us one way or the other in those kinds of things. 
in these gray areas and dealing with these gray areas, if you participate or don't participate, there's really, there's really no plus or minus here. And so we need to maintain a balance. You can feel free to share the knowledge that you have, but if you do, you need to share it in a loving way so it's constructive in the lives of other people. And we need to be responding toward people in love and with the hopes of building them up rather than just in our puffed upness and our, in, in our arrogance. To make it very practical, the results that we're looking for, the goal that should be in our heads should be twofold. We need to bring glory to God and we need to bring good to others. You know what? Any area of liberty of ours, we should be willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish those two things. The glory of God is our ultimate purpose in life. And goodness, bringing goodness to other people, is often how we accomplish that same glory.